more time. Good, there it is. Good morning. It says all working out just fine because I'm uh, trying to take a little bit longer to give some people time to make their way back in because um, I know all too well that dropping your kids off can be, well, you just never know what you're going to get. Well, but good morning. My name is Zach. I'm the associate minister here, and we will be continuing in our sermon series uh, in the book of Daniel, as you have already heard this morning. Have you ever, surely you have found yourself doing this, have you ever found yourself staring into your refrigerator wondering what you were looking for? Yes, of course, right? In the time it took you to walk from your couch to your kitchen, you have already forgot what you were doing. So you stare, turn your head a little bit like this, and you Retrace your steps. You try to do whatever you can to jog your memory. And maybe it comes back and uh, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it was important. Maybe it wasn't. But we've all done that. Or maybe you started a project. Uh, say you're cleaning out your attic, which this is not coming from personal experience, just so you know. Uh, but you're cleaning out your attic and maybe you stumble upon an old box of clothes and you spend hours reminiscing over years of sweet memories Jogged loose by this box, but you also haven't done what you set out to do. A good question to ask ourselves and to ask ourselves often is, what am I doing? Why are you at Prairie View this morning? Why are you listening to me? What's, if we're just being honest, what's distracting you since you came through the doors this morning? Life has a tendency to sort of just happen to us, to happen to you if you're not paying attention, if you're not asking the question, what am I doing? We might find ourselves in harmless situations like staring into the back of the refrigerator or having sweet memories of years gone by from a box of old clothes and failing to ask ourselves this question of what am I doing? It's not inherently sinful. But it's never a bad idea to check our goals and check our motivations. What do I want and why do I want it? What am I doing and why am I doing it? It may be as you're sitting here this morning, you're asking yourself those questions now. Great, great. But before you go any further down that rabbit hole, I still have another 30 minutes of talking to do. So I would like for you to listen to me. Right? You need to hear this wonderful, startling truth from Scripture that will hopefully should influence every one of those. What am I even doing questions for the rest of your life? You were made to reign with God. You were made to reign with God and one day delivered from sin and death by faith in Jesus Christ. You can and you will. Daniel 7 includes a vision from the prophet Daniel that paints a picture of this reality for us. The powers that prevail today will fail and only one kingdom will stand forever. And that everlasting kingdom is the very thing you were made for. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we turn into your word, um, shine a light on it and shine the light of it into us. By your Holy Spirit, God, I pray that you would work in us and on us and through us. 
Um, speak through me, Father, um, that we all might hear what you have to say. God, thank you for Sunday mornings and the opportunity to gather, to to pray together, to sing together, to take communion and give an offering together, to share our burdens with each other and to gather here in this place. Um, Father, I just pray again that you would remove distractions from us, that we would turn our eyes, turn our hearts, turn our ears to you and hear you um, and that you would do what you've promised to do. Uh, that your word doesn't go out and return empty, but that you are always at work. And so we trust you, we trust you that you are at work in your word. That's why we turn to the Bible every Sunday, every day, looking to your word, looking to find life there. So I pray, God, that as we have come to this place with different burdens, with different joys, um, just the very many winding paths we take to get here this morning, Lord, that you are uh, God of it all, and ultimately we were made for you, to be with you, and to rule and reign with you. And I pray that we find the joy and the hope and the truth of that in Scripture this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Daniel 7 marks a turning point in the book of Daniel. Chapters 1 through 6, they tell the stories of the exploits of Daniel and some of his friends and a couple of kings along the way as well. These are Jewish exiles in Babylon. And the stories behind the stories, the stories of how they got to be exiled in the first place, are just as important as anything you'll find in Daniel. But obviously we can't get into all of that this morning, and we've gotten to some of that over the past several weeks. But Daniel 1 through 6 tell legitimately good stories in their own right. And they're packed with wisdom and theological insight. But beginning with chapter 7, the stories stop and are replaced with highly symbolic visions and their sometimes less than clear interpretations. We're immediately tipped off to this change in pace if we're careful enough readers. To this point, the book has moved chronologically. The the events of chapter 1 take place before the events of chapter 2, and so on and so forth. But Daniel 7.1 will take us back in time. In Daniel 5, so we're in Daniel 7 this morning, but in Daniel 5, King Belshazzar's feast, his own last supper, right, where a ghostly hand appears and writes a cryptic message of condemnation on the wall. That's, that happened in Daniel 5. That very night, King Belshazzar dies, Well, Daniel 7, it tells us in verse 1, Daniel 7 happens in the first year of that king's reign. So there had been no handwriting on the wall, and in Daniel 6, there had been no lion's den to endure. And this ordering of the stories of the book of Daniel isn't arbitrary. They didn't just throw it up and see how it stuck. It's meant to prepare us to read Daniel 7 in a certain light. So let's see what that is. We'll start reading in Daniel 7, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Now we're going to stop there because as we read this passage, situated as it is in the book of Daniel, does it strike you at all that the first of these beasts is a lion? Never mind the eagle's wings uh, for a moment. The eagle's wings certainly make this 
more than a lion. But the imagery should call to mind the lions from Daniel 6. And what do we know about the lions in Daniel 6? While they have bone-shattering, life-ending power, their mouths will not open if God so chooses. So as we read Daniel 7, we wonder, will God exercise the same power over these beasts as he did those beasts? And if you suspect the answer is yes, then your instincts are good and right. Let's keep reading, picking back up in verse 4. The first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had gray iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now, I know (laughs) I know you're probably wondering, what does that mean? Of course you are. What are the ribs and the heads and the wings? Who's the lion? Who's the bear? Who's the leopard? What in the world is the beast? I'm sorry to disappoint you. But truthfully, I'm not sure. There are many interpretations of this passage, um, and some better than others. But as you look and you, you, frankly, read from people much smarter than I am, there's really nothing conclusive. But I don't think certainty on these matters is the point of this text. At least it's not the only point or even the biggest point. So we're not going to spend our time evaluating all of the ways this prophecy may have been or is still being fulfilled. For now, for this morning, we will trust that God's word is true and we will leave the historical cross-referencing for another time. But what can we conclude from the vision so far? And for that, we'll jump ahead a little bit. Uh, In Daniel 7.17, Daniel has sought some interpretive help. An angel in his vision explains, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So what can we conclude? Well, this much is straightforward. The four beasts correspond to four kings and their kingdoms. Which four kings? It's, It's hard to say. But I'll repeat myself, certainty over the beasts and their corresponding kings is not essential for this text to be meaningful. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. It just means we don't have to wonder and speculate in order to understand what God is saying. So instead of speculating about that, I want you to speculate or imagine this. Imagine yourself in a dream with these monsters. 
a lion with eagle's wings coming out of the sea, a bear, a four-headed, four-winged leopard, and a ten-horned monster unlike anything you have ever seen, devouring with iron teeth and bronze claws, crushing with bronze claws. Imagine yourself in that dream and see if you don't get a sinking feeling in your stomach. It's an important part of a passage like this is feeling it in your gut. Feeling it. Feeling Daniel 7 in your gut. Daniel 7.15 says this. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. That This vision of beastly kings terrified Daniel. It was a nightmare. And we need to feel some of the terror, some of the revulsion that these nasty creatures inspired. They are not puppies and kittens and ducklings and chicks that might give you a scratch or a nick. These four beasts are not paper tigers. They have real power and they pose real threats. And we might know, you might know, we will read and we will find that they lose in the end. But it's not because they're powerless. But there is a greater power. So let's keep reading, picking up in verse 9. Daniel 7 verse 9 says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Over the course of just a few short verses, we see that this is where the greater power resides. The ancient of days has the ultimate authority. But who is the ancient of days? What does this passage tell us? His white clothes signify his purity and righteousness. His white hair signifies his experience and wisdom. And the fire around him represents his power. The Ancient of Days is none other than God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And the books that are opened in front of him are a common item of ancient courts, of ancient kingdoms. It's a book of a record of his decrees, his wishes, his plans. And they will be done. The perfectly righteous, perfectly wise, perfectly power, powerful ruler will have his will done. What more could you want? In verses 9 through 12, we see in symbols what we have seen elsewhere in the book of Daniel woven into the fabric of history. It is God himself, the ancient of days, who appoints kings and kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar was king to the extent that it pleased God. So was Belshazzar. So was Darius. And for that matter, so was Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus. So are those who sit in power today. Just as the lions, those king of beasts, right? The lion, the king of, of the jungle with its golden crown of hair 
God shut that beast's mouth and made it totally dependent upon him. In the very same way, these beastly kings, whoever they might be, are always at the mercy of God. All earthly powers are always and forever subject to the mercy of the ancient of days. This is and has been the theme of Daniel. Yes, Daniel shows us what it looks like to be faithful. But that faithfulness is firmly grounded in who God is. And we know this by way of Daniel's name. Now, the name Daniel means God is my judge. And that sentence might cause you to wince due to the way it's been used and abused to excuse all sorts of wickedness and godlessness and sin. But its misuse doesn't make it any less true. Time and again in Daniel, we see God vindicating the faithful who are condemned by worldly powers and condemning those very same worldly powers. It's not earthly kings who have the power of life and death, whether or not they're flexing fiery furnaces and pits with starving lions. It is God who judges. It is God who governs and it is God who reigns. And it's true. It's true that God is merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But it's just as true that God will deal severely with sin and those guilty of it. Look at the fate of the men who opposed Daniel and sought to end his life in Daniel 6. It says the lions devoured them before they could even hit the bottom of the pit. But God isn't cruel in his wrath. His judgments are just. To see God as cruel in his handling of sin is to misunderstand the nature of sin. Sin and God are like oil and water. They simply won't mix. But unlike oil and water, which can coexist, sin is like a disease leading to death. It's always creeping. It's always looking for more. It doesn't sit still. Sin's appetite is never satisfied and it therefore must be dealt with it is either healed and restored or it is removed and destroyed and if you will not know god in the joy of healing then you will know him in the sorrow of destruction but either way you will be judged by god daniel By his name, by his character, by his very life, he teaches us and shows us that God is the judge. Now, where is all this heading? Who is deemed worthy of life? Well, we've not yet finished Daniel 7. And truth be told, we will not get through all of Daniel 7 today. But it kind of repeats itself in the second half in explaining. But let's pick back up in verses 13 and 14. Say this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. One like a son of man is deemed worthy. 
This is the one who is not destroyed. Instead, he is given glory and an everlasting kingdom. All peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. But again, who? Who is this? Who is this son of man? The passage itself doesn't tell us much. In fact, the phrase son of man can simply mean human. The prophet Ezekiel who has a book named after him. The prophet Ezekiel in that book is referred to as son of man several times, but given the context, it never suggests anything more than the humanity of Ezekiel. But we know, because of the context of Daniel 7, that this is a special case. This is a special usage of the son of man. The first thing is that the son of man is riding on the clouds. And this tells us more than what you and I might see on the surface. Because similar to a cape and a mask identifying a superhero, right? You see someone with a cape and a mask, they're probably a superhero, right? Um, Someone riding the clouds would be identified as a god. That's how it worked. That was the symbolism. So this son of man, judged righteous by the ancient of days and given an everlasting kingdom, would be a god-man. This was Daniel's hope. This was the hope of all those who trusted in the Lord. That a God-man would come and establish a kingdom over the evil powers of the world forever. When Christ came, as recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is his favorite title for himself. More than anything else, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Calling himself the Son of God, the Son of David, the Messiah, or the Christ, would have been... Completely accurate, but also incredibly provocative. It's not that Jesus shied away from provocation, but those titles were so politically charged that the eternal spiritual significance of Jesus' work could have been swallowed up by the political desires of the masses. As a a bit of an aside, I just want to be crystal clear that I'm not suggesting an apolitical Jesus. Pontius Pilate hung king of the Jews above Christ as Christ himself hung on the cross. This was more than a spiritual claim for Jesus to be king of the Jews. And to those around, it was most obviously a political statement. To be a king is inherently political. Now, maybe you've heard the quote that says you should never talk about religion and politics. Um, And there's good reason for that. But the quote I like better, and I'm not directly quoting it, but it comes from a man named G.K. Chesterton. And he says that religion and politics are the only things worth talking about. And I think he's right. Because religion, as a matter of the way we live our lives based on what's most important to us, it's pretty important to talk about. Politics, as a matter of how we live with other people, it's pretty important to talk about. Now, obviously, Jesus has much to say on both fronts. And while this is, again, only an aside into a very admittedly complicated topic, I do think it's important for us to know that the spiritual and political are not so easily separated, if at all. And and talking about the political Jesus or the spiritual Jesus, I'm not trying to say that Jesus did not care for politics, just maybe not in the way that we do it here in America. Now, to get back to Daniel 7. Um, Because, again, I do think that's important given the world we live in. But how do we know? How do we know that Daniel's son of man, so the son of man Daniel sees, how do we know that this is the same son of man Jesus is referring to? 
Because isn't it possible that Jesus was just stressing his humanity? Isn't it possible he didn't want people to get confused and think he was claiming to be God? Isn't it possible that somewhere along the way, Christians thought so highly of Jesus that they turned him into God, even though all he ever claimed to be was human? No. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not possible. In Matthew 26, verse 62 through 65, it says this. The high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do you need? You have now heard his blasphemy. In Matthew 26, Jesus is on trial, but he hardly defends himself. Instead, he calls himself the son of man and references thrones and clouds, which is the imagery of Daniel 7. And the high priest hears him loud and clear. Jesus is claiming to be more than a man. He's claiming kingly power and he's claiming to be God. But is he? Can we be sure that Jesus is who he says he is? The answer, again, yes, we can. And how? By trusting in the judgment of God. By trusting that God is, in fact, the judge. Jesus was shown to be righteous, to sh- shown to be right, to sh- shown to be on God's side, to be God's man, to be who he said he was, in the same way Daniel and his friends were vindicated. It was obvious to anyone paying attention that Daniel was God's man. But Daniel never claimed to be more than that, a man. But Jesus, on the other hand, claimed to be the God-man. Jesus claimed to offer forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. For Daniel, being raised from the lion's den was vindication. For Jesus, being raised from death itself was his vindication. That is not the point or the moment he became God's man, but that is the point where it became undeniable. And one day, your resurrection, bought with the blood of Christ, will do the same. Now in Romans 1, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says that the resurrection was the public declaration of Jesus' identity as the Son of God and Messiah. Or in other words, it was his public identification as the Son of Man. In Acts 2, Peter connects the raising up of Jesus in his resurrection with his being raised up and exalted to the right hand of God. In other words, seated on a throne. Later, in Acts 7, we find the story of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, being killed for his faith in Christ. And he looks up into the sky and he sees Jesus Christ at the right hand of God in heaven. And those who were witness to Stephen's death heard Stephen say that he saw the Son of Man. Of course, this is just the evidence. You can choose to accept it or reject it. Nothing can stop you from coming up with counter-evidence. But the earliest Christians believed that Jesus was who he said he was. They believed that he was the Son of Man, seen in a vision and prophesied by Daniel over 500 years earlier. Many of the earliest disciples, not even just the earliest, 
through the generations, disciples would forfeit their lives to proclaim that salvation was found in no one else but Jesus. They would lose their lives holding on to hope that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. Now, it's easy enough to see that the world is full of beasts, but it can be much harder to see the light of Christ that overcomes the darkness. But one like a Son of Man has come, and he is coming again to establish an everlasting kingdom of perfect peace. Don't you want to be there? (laughs) Who doesn't want peace? Who doesn't want rest? Who doesn't want life forever, free even from the faintest shadow or the slightest sniff of death? You were made to reign with God. Genesis 1 tells us that we are made in God's image. And while many people have speculated and talked and studied what, over what the image entails, I think the most and best, uh, the most obvious and best explanation is the one that's always been right in front of us. Genesis 1:26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And I didn't cite it here, but just, again, so I'm crystal clear, uh, the next verse, uh, Genesis 1:27, tells us that God made male and female in his image. It's not men, it's not women separate, it's male and female together, and nothing else made in the image of God. But we were made to have dominion. We were made to rule as God's people over God's creation. This doesn't mean we have the power to do anything we want. That was the problem with Adam and Eve, doing what they wanted rather than what God wanted. And it's been our problem ever since. But we are meant to care for creation. We are meant to care for ourselves and care for one another. And it's all done in faithful service to the one who made it all. That is what we were made to do. To have dominion and exercising it in that way. But of course, our sin messes it all up. Our sin is rebellion against God. But that doesn't change the fact that we as humans, again, have been made for him. To be fully human is to be reconciled to God, serving him, reflecting him into the world he made. This is powerfully represented in Daniel 7. The four kings and their kingdoms destined for destruction are identified as beasts. But the everlasting kingdom is led by a man and belongs to his people. Why? Because it is people, not beasts, who are given dominion by God. This doesn't mean that every comparison of a human to an animal is an insult. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. But I do believe that Daniel is suggesting that we become like beasts when we ignore God and we claim power as our own. King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 boasts that he has made himself great. He looks out across his kingdom and he says, look what I've done. And God says, well, look what I'm going to do. And he punishes Nebuchadnezzar and he humbles him. And what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? He becomes like a beast. He's out grazing grass in the field like an ox. His appearance becomes beast-like until God has mercy and Nebuchadnezzar repents. 
acknowledging that it is the Lord who appoints kings and it is God who rules the nations. Daniel 7 is a vision of the end of history. It doesn't describe eternity, but it tells us what will happen when the age we live in comes to a close. And the end it describes is the logical conclusion to the story the Bible has always been telling. God ridding the world of sin, ruling and reigning with his people, reflecting and praising his glory throughout all that he has made. In Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who is himself the perfect image of the invisible God, is and will be the King of all kings. As life happens to you, will you live in such a way that you can confidently say you are who you were made to be, that you are serving who you were made to serve, awake to the world and fully alive in Christ? Because that's the Father's good plan for eternity. And there's no reason not to get a jump start. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that in a world that is just racked with heartache and beyond heartache, evil, God, real and true evil, that you and your word have promised to deliver us. God, thank you that the evil that we commit, the evil in our own hearts, doesn't sentence us to doom and destruction. But because of your son, Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven and reconciled and made part of the kingdom that will rule and reign forever. And that that's our hope. Our hope is um, to be in that perfect kingdom, Lord. And uh, I just pray that you would fix our eyes and fix our hearts on that. Um, that in the midst of hurt, um, we have hope. And not only do we have hope, but we have something to strive towards and to work towards because we know the ending from the beginning. We know where we're going. And I pray that that just keeps our feet on solid ground. Um, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the way it empowers us and equips us. Um, God, I pray that the the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit, that he would be with us and guide us and help these truths hit our hearts, that we'd feel the good part of the story in our guts the way we feel the bad part of our story, of the story in our guts. Lord, again, I just thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the son of man who will rule and reign in perfection, in perfect righteousness, perfect wisdom, and perfect power. Father, I pray that we would see those things taking place now and that we would all be found faithful the day that it happens for the rest of eternity. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.